everyone. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, and Part 2 of the Shroud of Turin, which, as our listeners know by now, is by no means a settled debate as to who left his imprint on the Shroud. The only real but heavily debated positives for detractors being a carbon dating performed on a small corner sample that placed its age somewhere in the 13th or 14th century, obviously after Christ's death, and a 14th century memorandum found in the collection of the Bishop de Arcis, stating his opinion that the shroud was a fake and claiming that the man who created it had admitted it was all a hoax, a story which we will unwrap in detail ahead. On the believer side, there are a number of factors that give the Christ shroud support, beginning with DNA tests and pollen studies, which narrow the shroud to North Africa. Also, the marks of the crucifixion, as per the biblical account, are found all over the body. There has been carbon isotope dating of the shroud, which dates to Jesus' time. And the big one, the first photographic negative in 1898, which showed detail for the first time. All anyone had to work with up to that time, including our supposed hoaxer, was faint lines indicating the crude form of a man and definitely lacking the details that the first photo negative and following tests showed. Details that included nail holes in the wrists rather than through the hands, which, by the way, had been the image portrayed in all artwork in the Middle Ages. No exceptions. Details which included the scourge wounds from the whipping received. Details which included puncture wounds consistent with ones that a crown of thorns would have made. Details showing the puncture wound from the centurion's spear. Details showing Roman coins placed over the eyes and other evidence supporting the biblical account. Add to this a host of circumstantial evidence, such as the presence of what appears to be aloe leaves to our visual left of Jesus' head. Bloodstains on the shroud and facial cover that match in over 100 locations. And keep in mind that the facial cover and shroud took completely different paths through history, and that 100 points of bloodstain shown on the facial cover which was removed from his bloody face when he was carried down from the cross, matched the blood found on the shroud when a photo of the facial cover was placed over that of the shroud. And blood tests on both showed A.B. Tests on the presence of myrrh and aloe, used almost exclusively in that area alone for burial, did indicate the presence of both. The first official report of the shroud's existence was that of it being given to a church by descendants of a famous Knight Templar named Descharnay, who is a key figure in today's story. The Knights Templar were given charge of, or came into possession of, a number of holy relics, through war, and the conquering of cities such as Constantinople, as legend tells us, and we'll cover that story here. And there is enough here to give the Knights Templar legend some serious credence. And to be fair, critics can say, how can something of great holy value disappear for 1,000 years and then suddenly return only to be called a hoax? To refresh our listeners, in the Shroud of Turin Part 1, we learned that the Shroud of Turin is a 14-foot-long by 3-foot-wide cloth that many believe covered the body of Jesus Christ after he was taken down from the cross and prepared for a traditional Jewish burial by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who only had a short time to prepare Jesus for burial on account of Jewish laws governing the Sabbath. 
the preparation for Jewish burial was supposed to include a washing. Then a mummy-like wrapping of linen using a paste of combined aloe and myrrh between the folds. Jewish law prohibited any preparation of the body after 6 p.m. that day, at which time the Sabbath began. Jesus was taken down from the cross by Joseph at approximately 3 p.m. How long it took him to carry the body to his tomb is unknown. How long Joseph had to wait for Nicodemus to arrive with the hundred pounds of spices and the linen is unknown. But one man carrying a hundred-pound bag of spices is a slow-walking man. And how long did it take Joseph to reach the tomb? And did he have any help with Jesus' body? It may well be that they only had minutes by the time everything was ready to prepare the body. The reason we cover those questions is that some detractors rely on the fact that the method of preparation used on whoever was beneath that shroud was not in full accordance with Jewish law, and that the use of only one 14-foot-long shroud to cover the body once, from foot to head, then over the head, and back to the feet, instead of using strips of linen to wrap the body, was very unusual. But when you look at the time problem, it supports the authenticity of the unusual Christ shroud rather than detracts from it. And that's where we are as we begin part two, and we start digging into the history of the shroud. There is definitely some confusion in history regarding the Mendelian, which is a square image, also called the image of Edessa, said to be that of Christ's face and the shroud. The Mendelian receives a number of mentions throughout the Middle Ages. It was considered to be a holy relic. There is no doubt that painters copied the face and hair from an original image at some point, and that this image somewhat resembles the faint image we see on the shroud, plus artists' improvements with color and facial structure. This image includes the long hair, the large solemn eyes, a long nose, and forked beard. The painters added eye color, skin color, and facial characteristics that tended to match the artist's own conception of Jesus' race. It seems in some accounts that the Mandelian was a painted image on a cloth, this image being much more identifiable by the masses who saw it, and therefore much better known, than the shroud which had most likely originally inspired it. And it seems that the shroud was kept mostly out of sight. And why not? The image was barely discernible, and looked as if faded. Why expose it more than needed, when an image of the face was all that was needed? Testimonies from the 11th and 12th centuries attest to the Mandelians and very possibly the Shroud's presence in Constantinople in 1080. At this time, Alexis I, Comnenus, employed the aid of Emperor Henry IV and Robert of Flanders in defending, quote, the linens found in the tomb after his resurrection, end quote. Other distinguished leaders who saw the Mandelian were King Louis VII of France in 1147. Bishop William of Tyre, and King Amari of Jerusalem in 1171. Nicholas Messardes, the custodian of the cloth kept in the Pharaoh's chapel, described how he had to defend the relics against a mob in a palace revolution in 1201. He wrote, In this chapel Christ rises again, and the sindon with the burial linens is the clear proof. The burial sindon of Christ, this is of linen, of cheap and easily obtainable material, still smelling fragrant of myrrh, defying decay, because it wrapped the mysterious, naked, dead body after the passion. End quote. And it doesn't sound like he was talking about just a face cloth here. In 1204, 
Constantinople was sacked during the Fourth Crusade led by Boniface, the Marquess of Montferrat. It was a wrongful decision for the Knights Templar to participate, a decision which was made to defend the honor of a Christian ally who had recently led the city but had been imprisoned. The Knights should have stepped away from this one, but didn't. For three days the Knights, most of whom were Frenchmen, and those being largely Templar Knights, mercilessly attacked Christians in the city. They stole gold, silver, and sacred relics, one of those very likely being the Holy Shroud. Robert de Clary, a knight from Picardy, took part in the capture of the city, which ultimately fell on April 12, 1204. He chronicled the events in his diary, called La Conquête de Constantinople. In that diary, he related how he saw various holy relics, but what impressed him the most was the cloth at Beckernay. He writes, There was another of the churches which they called My Lady St. Mary of Blackernay, which was kept in the Sindone in which our Lord had been wrapped, which stood up straight every Friday so that the figure of our Lord could plainly be seen there. End quote. That was 1204. After the conquest of Constantinople, de Clary notes, And no one, either Greek or French, ever knew what became of this Sindone after the city was taken. It then disappeared for about 150 years until it reappeared in Lyre, France, in the 1350s. One theory advanced to explain the silence of these missing years is that of British author and researcher Ian Wilson. He claims that the cloth was probably in the possession of a religious order of knights known as, drum roll please, the Knights Templar. The Knights Templar was founded around the year 1118 by two French knights, Hugh of Payenne and Geoffrey of Saint-Omer, and seven of their companions. They were originally known as the Poor Knights of Christ of the Temple of Solomon because they were headquartered near the ruins of Solomon's Temple. Early in the Middle Ages, other knights had earned the reputation as armed thugs working for hire for men who were wealthy enough to pay them. These poor knights took vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Their purpose was to defend the sacred sites in the Holy Land, to defend Jerusalem as well as the Christian states in the Middle East, and they took part in all but the first of the Ten Crusades between 1095 and 1291. It was warring Turks from the spreading Ottoman Empire who wanted to replace Christianity with their Muslim religion that the Knights Templar found themselves battling against. They became highly trained, fierce fighters, and acted as the advanced forces for Christian armies during the Crusades. And even when greatly outnumbered, such as at the Battle of Montgisard against the forces of Saladin, the Knights Templar were victorious in battle. And although the Knights were sworn to poverty, they became extremely wealthy due to conquests, donations, and property given to them in return for their services. They also became financiers. They provided loans to kings, owned a full fleet of ships, and at one time came into possession of the English crown jewels, provided a security for a large loan. The French treasury also used the Templars as a subcontractor for many of its functions, and it was the French under King Philip IV that finally decided to imprison and try to destroy the Knights Templar so that king could seize the wealth that they had accumulated in 1307 and cancel his very large debt to them in the process. Oftentimes, princes and nobles would entrust them with their treasures and religious artifacts for safekeeping. 
The Templars were a somewhat mysterious group. It was alleged that they worshipped a head and feet of a cloth image in their secret ceremonies. A Vatican secret archives researcher named Barbara Frail, who we mentioned in Part 1, while researching the trials that took place while torturing captured Templars for the purpose of extracting false confessions from them in order to destroy the order, recently found evidence that the Knights Templar held secret custody of the Shroud of Turin during the 13th and early 14th centuries. The Shroud, she believed, was used in a secret Templar ritual to underline Christ's humanity in the face of popular heresies of the time. The document recounts how a Templar leader, after guiding a young initiate into a hidden room, showed him the long linen cloth that bore the impressed figure of a man and ordered him to worship it, kissing the feet three times, said Frail. She also postulated that the Knights Templar may have kept the shroud secret because of papal orders of excommunication for anyone involved in looting relics from Constantinople or trafficking in them afterward. She said the shroud's image was particularly important for the Knights Templar as an antidote to the heresies that had arisen, especially those that affirmed that Christ was purely a spiritual being and never really had a human body or shed human blood. On October 13, 1307, the Knights Templar were suppressed in France by order of King Philip IV, the Fair, and Pope Clement V. Two of the Grand Masters, namely Jacques de Molay of France and Geoffrey de Charny of Normandy, were burned at the stake on March 19, 1314, on the small island called Ile de Juifs, which faced the Cathedral of Notre Dame. With them were two other knights, namely Hugh de Porode, his title Visitor of France, and Godefroy de Gonneval, his title Master of Aquitaine. The four were brought forth from the jail in which they had been held for nearly seven years to receive the sentence agreed upon by the cardinals in conjunction with the Archbishop of Sens and some other prelates whom they had called in. Considering the offenses which the culprits had confessed and confirmed, the penance imposed was in accordance with rule that of imprisonment for life. That affair was supposed to be concluded when, to the dismay of the prelates and the wonderment of the assembled crowd, Jacques de Molay and Geoffrey de Charnay arose. They had been guilty, they said, not of the crimes imputed to them, but of basely betraying their order to save their own lives. Their order of knights, they said, was pure and holy. The charges were fictitious and the confessions false. In quick manner the cardinals delivered them to the prevost of Paris and retired to deliberate on this unexpected contingency, but they were saved all trouble of having to decide what to do. When the news was carried to French King Philip IV, he was furious. A short consultation with his council occurred, and the canons pronounced that the relapsed heretics were to be burned without a hearing. The facts were notorious, and no formal judgment by the papal commission need be waited for. That same day, by sunset, a pyre was erected on a small island in the Seine, the Ile des Juifs, in French, the Island of Jews, this being an island where Jews at one time were commonly burned alive, near the palace garden. There, de Molay, de Charnay, de Gonneville, and de Perode were slowly burned to death, refusing all offers of pardon for retraction, and bearing their torment with a composure which won for them the reputation of martyrs among the people. 
A large 40-foot-high triangle of wood was constructed upon the small island, leaving a platform at the top where Jacques de Molay, de Ganneville, de Perraud, and Geoffrey de Charnay were brought and then tied, standing, wearing their white robes with their red Maltese cross symbol, as French soldiers below them employed their torches to the wooden frame at the bottom. Philip IV and his court, no doubt with bishops or precepts in attendance, who would report back to the Pope, who, by the way, had moved the seat of the Catholic Church at this time from Italy to Paris, sat in special stands on the riverbank, amongst a throng of hundreds of witnesses, all of whom watched as the men were burned alive. According to legend, as the flames rose and began to burn them, Jacques de Molay denounced his confession before all the witnesses, saying that he had been tortured and forced to say and write things which were not true, and that he accepted Jesus as his Savior. He then cursed the Pope and Philip IV, promising to send them to hell for what they had done. His words, according to legend, were, Let evil swiftly befall those who have wrongly condemned us. God will avenge us. As the flames consumed their bodies, the pyramid of wood crashed backwards into the sand. It was March 18, 1314. Pope Clement died 32 days later, on April 20, 1314. According to one account, while his body was lying in state, a thunderstorm arose during the night, and lightning struck the church where his body lay, setting it on fire. The fire was so intense that by the time it was extinguished, the Pope's body had been all but destroyed. In another account, the Pope died crying over his complicity in the burning of the Templars, in addition to other atrocities he had committed, one being the murder by poison of the Pope who had held office before him. France's fair King Philip IV died suddenly, only eight months later, at age 44, from a cerebral stroke that occurred during a hunt at pont saint maxence known as the Forest of Halat, and died a few weeks later on the 29th of November, 1314, at Fontainebleau, where he was born. The theory that the Templars may have possessed the shroud is supported by the discovery in 1944 of a painting of the Holy Face, which was painted circa 1280, on a wooden panel in the village of Templecombe, England. This village was owned by the Knights Templar from about 1185. Rex Morgan, a shroud scholar, hypothesized that the wooden panel may actually have been a lid to a wooden box which contained the shroud when it was transferred from France to England during the suppression of the Templars. The temple comb panel has 125 points of congruence with the shroud face. The fleur-de-lis decoration of the painting strongly suggests French influence and the quatrefoil design is recurrent in Templar decorative motifs, Morgan wrote. The theory is very plausible, except that the Templars never admitted to possessing the shroud. But then again, you wouldn't have expected them to during those times. The only city to have claimed to possess the shroud from 1208 to 1329 was the French city of Besançon. The theory is that during the Fourth Crusade, the Burgundian knight who commanded the district of Blachernay, where the shroud was kept, Orthon de la Roche, Duke of Athens and Sparta, received it as part of his recompense. The claim that the shroud was in Athens is attested to directly in a letter by Theodore of Epirus, dated August 1, 1205, and indirectly by Nicholas of Otranto, abbot of the monastery of Casol, Othon, in turn, 
who sent the cloth to his father, Ponce de la Roche, who then handed it over to the Bishop of Besançon, who placed it in the cathedral of Saint-Étienne, where it was exposed for veneration each year on Easter, until 1349. In that year, a fire burned down the cathedral, causing damage to the shroud. In the midst of all that confusion, the shroud disappeared. According to a dubious 16th-century account kept in the second church of Lyrae, the shroud was given to King Philip VI. He subsequently gave it to a friend whose name, coincidentally, was the same as the Templar Grand Master who was burned to the stake, Geoffrey I de Charnay. Or maybe not a big coincidence, as the Charnay here is spelled without the E as C-H-A-R-N-Y. And the Knight Templar of the similar name, who was burned by King Philip IV, was de Charnay, C-H-R-N-E-Y, with an E before the Y. It is very possible that the Charnay line continued, but changed the spelling of their name to denounce their heritage, and thus escape retribution of any kind. History doesn't solve that one for us. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Our new Geoffrey I de Charnay was captured by the English after the Battle of Calais in 1349 and sent to England as a prisoner of war. It is conjectured that he may somehow have hidden and later concealed the shroud in Templecombe. He remained in England until 1351 when King John II of France paid for his release. In June of 1353, King John granted de Charnay permission to build a collegiate church in Lyrae, France. And what do you know? The shroud turned up in Lyrae in 1356, three years later, and was authenticated, for the first time, by church document. Geoffrey de Charnay died in the Battle of Poitiers on September 19th in that same year, 1356. His widow, Jean de Vergy, who was the great-great-great-great-granddaughter of Othon de la Roche, then acquired the cloth. Being in financial straits after the death of her husband, she began to exhibit the shroud in 1357 to raise money for the upkeep of the church. On June 5, 1357, twelve bishops gathered to sign a grant of indulgences to pilgrims who visited the collegial church at Lyrae. For reasons unknown, Jean de Vergy and her son, Geoffrey II de Charnay, who coincidentally was married to Marguerite de Poitiers, the niece of Bishop Henri, waited some thirty years before attempting to display the cloth again. And this is where we come to the story, that the shroud was a hoax, which is one of the big two negatives supported by skeptics. And, as you'll see, wasn't a very well-documented story. The opening of the exhibition in April 1389 generated such a furor that the Bishop of Lorraine threatened recourse to Pope Clement VII. 
He at that time was known as the Antipope, and he responded by confirming his permission and imposing silence on the bishop. Not satisfied, the bishop appealed to King Charles VI to revoke his permission for the exhibition, but that didn't work either. In exasperation, the Bishop of Luray, also known as Bishop Darcis, wrote his famous memorandum to Clement VII, and in it he charged, The case, Holy Father, stands thus. Sometimes, since in this diocese of Troy, the dean of a certain collegiate church, to wit, the Church of Luray, falsely and deceitfully, being consumed with the passion of avarice, and not from any motive of devotion, but only of gain, procured for his church a certain cloth cunningly painted, upon which by a clever sleight of hand was depicted the twofold image of one man, that is to say, the back and front, he falsely declaring and pretending that this was the actual shroud in which our Savior Jesus Christ was enfolded in the tomb. The Lord Henry of Poitiers, a pious memory, then Bishop of Troy, becoming aware of this, and urged by many prudent persons to take action, as indeed was his duty in the exercise of his ordinary jurisdiction, set himself earnestly to work to fathom the truth of this matter. For many theologians and other wise persons declared that this could not be the real shroud of our Lord, having the Savior's likeness thus imprinted upon it. Eventually, after diligent inquiry and examination, he discovered the fraud, and how the said cloth had been cunningly painted, the truth being attested by the artist who had painted it, to wit, that it was a work of human skill, and not miraculously wrought or bestowed. Accordingly, after taking mature counsel with wise theologians and the men of the law, seeing that he neither ought nor could allow the matter to pass, he began to institute formal proceedings against the said dean and his accomplices in order to root out this false persuasion. He continued to write, They, seeing their wickedness discovered, hid away the said cloth so that the ordinary could not find it, and they kept it hidden afterwards for thirty-four years, or thereabouts down to the present year. Bishop Darcy's letter accuses the clergy of Luray with simony, and alludes to the so-called investigation made by his predecessor, but he doesn't substantiate the charges he levels. One would think that if the artist admitted to painting the image, he would have been forced to write a confession. As it is, there is no record of any confession, nor the name of the alleged artist. Yet opponents of the Shroud's authenticity often refer to this letter as historical proof that the Shroud is a medieval forgery. Darcis even admits that, although it is not publicly stated to be the true Shroud of Christ, nevertheless, this is given out and noised abroad in private, and so it is believed by many, the more so because, as stated above, it was on the previous occasion, in 1356, declared to be the true Shroud of Christ. In the 1900s, Ulysses Chevalier, a French medieval scholar who denied the Shroud's authenticity based upon this memorandum, found himself transcribing the following quote from a period text. Quote, Extract that I have made from a Latin piece, undated, that appears to be a letter or request from a bishop of Troy or other ecclesiastic to a pope. End quote. Father Luigi Fossati, SDB, a syndenologist, and remember that's one who studies the shroud, and professor at the Salesian Institute in Turin, has said, quote, 
The document seemed to be only a rough draft, never put in final form to be sent to the Pope. Even Chevalier, an avowed skeptic, defines it as pre-memoria. The letter was never sent, which may account for the lack of the usual title for the official document. The title, Memorandum of Pierre d'Arcisse, was appended by those who discovered this letter. Nicholas Camuset, canon and archivist of the Diocese of Troy, does not even mention this memorandum in his Promptuarium Tricessonae Diocesis, where he makes specific reference to the Church of Lerae and to Bishops Henri de Poitiers and Pierre d'Arcisse. The anti-pope Clement VII never ordered an investigation into the accusations made by Bishop d'Arcisse. In a bull dated January 6, 1390, he, the anti-pope, authorized the continuation of the exposition of the shroud, provided it was presented as an image or likeness of Christ and not the true shroud. When Geoffrey II de Charnay died on May 22, 1398, his daughter Margaret de Charnay became the owner of the shroud. Two years later, she married Jean de Beaufermont. Their marriage ended tragically when Jean was killed at the Battle of Agincourt in 1415, leaving Margaret childless. In 1418, a war broke out in the vicinity of the chapel, and the clergy asked Margaret's second husband, Humbert de Villersexel, to protect it in his castle at Montfort, near Montbard. Humbert acknowledged receiving the relic, the shroud, in a letter dated July 6, 1418. In it, he wrote, During this period of war, and mindful of ill-disposed persons, we have received from our kind chaplains the dean and chapter of Our Lady of Luray, the jewels and relics of the aforesaid church, namely the things which follow. First, a cloth on which is the figure or representation of the shroud of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is in a casket emblazoned with the Descharnay crest. The aforesaid jewels and relics we have taken and received into our care from the said dean and chapter to be well and securely guarded in our castle at Montfort. Humbert also stimulated in his letter that these objects would be returned to the clergy of Luray after the war. When Humbert died in 1438, however, Margaret guarded the shroud jealously, taking it with her wherever she traveled. After the war was over, the clergy at Luray requested on May 8, 1443, that Margaret return the shroud. Perhaps fearing its future fate, as the church in Luray had fallen into disrepair, Margaret refused, even enduring threats of excommunication which was a big deal back in those days. On March 22, 1453, she gave it to her cousin Anna, the daughter of the King of Cyprus and wife of Duke Louis I of Savoy, who was a descendant of St. Louis IX, King of France. Margaret died seven years later on October 7, 1460. The Savoy dynasty was founded in 1003 and ruled Savoy and the Piedmont region which extended from southeastern France across the Alps to northwestern Italy. As we trace the movement of the shroud, now in the care of the Savoy dynasty, the shroud was stored in a metal-lined wooden box, and the shroud was damaged by molten metal which occurred while opening the box to douse the inside with water in 1532. It was narrowly saved from being burned altogether. It was moved to the new Savoyard capital of Turin in 1578, and ever since, it's been publicly exhibited only rarely, 
as in recent times, on the marriage of Prince Umberto in 1931 and on the 400th anniversary of its arrival in Turin in 1978. In 1998 and 2000, Pope John Paul II arranged for public viewings. He called the shroud a mirror of the gospel. Pope Benedict XVI similarly arranged a public display in 2010, and Pope Francis made a pilgrimage to see it in 2015. A replica of the shroud is housed in the Museum of the Shroud in Turin. And to the shroud today? How the image transferred itself onto the cloth is not known, and despite efforts by the best, has never been duplicated. Tests have been done proving that no paints of any type were used. The image, with the exception of blood, is formed of lighter and darker areas. Meticulous carbon dating tests showed it to be cloth dating between 1260 and 1390. Other tests place it as having been made during the time of Jesus. One question asked by skeptics, if the image was somehow recreated in the 14th century, whose image was it? For centuries, this holy cloth has been protected as a priceless icon by the Catholic Church in Turin, Italy, and in 1898, as we all know, was subjected to being photographed, at which time the image of the man beneath the shroud, who millions believed to be Jesus, became startlingly clear, showing now his full face, hair, and beard, as well as full body front and back, indicating that he had indeed been the victim of a terrible beating and a whipping with a lead-tipped whip, exactly the same as was described in the Bible, his back showing over 100 wounds from the whipping. None of this was visible to the naked eye prior to 1898. It is really something to think about. So how can a painter or hoaxer carefully render an image that no one could see in detail until the modern era? And then that detail ends up confirming the biblical account of Jesus' crucifixion. The wrists and ankles clearly show nail holes, and there's a wound from a centurion's lance in his side. At this point, skeptics can say, well, it could have been any victim of a whipping and crucifixion, and they often do, ignoring the fact that most victims of crucifixions were left on the cross, which was burned along with their remains, because they were considered to be criminals and not worthy of a burial. And most convincingly, researchers can clearly see puncture marks and resulting clotted blood at those marks, which run across the forehead and around the back of the head, marks which clearly represent those made by a crown of thorns. Jesus is the only man we know of in history who was given the crown of thorns before being crucified. As far as the carbon dating process that places the shroud linen between 1260 and 1390 goes, many believe that the shroud was compromised by extreme heat during the church fire from which it was saved, or possibly that the sample was part of patchwork which was done centuries later. If the shroud was made between 1260 and 1390, whose crucified image was on it? Some have conjectured that the body was that of Jacques de Molay, but he was burned to death and not crucified. Those same theorists say that, well, maybe Molay was put through a ritual similar to that of Jesus, which is how the body got its wounds. But they're forgetting the nail holes through his wrists and ankles and the stab wound in his side that would have killed him before he was placed on the burning pyre, and there were, and there were many witnesses to a live de Molay standing on the burning pyre. And we repeat, 
No paint pigments were found by testing. Not that it matters. The image is razor thin and could be scraped away with a razor. The image looks as though it was made by a sudden burst of energy or radiation emitted from the body. So intense that it left an image of the entire body upon the shroud. Maybe for all the world to discover one day. And then still to debate for eternity. In reality, the Shroud of Turin is an unassuming piece of twill cloth that bears traces of blood and a darkened imprint of a crucified man's body. Though the Catholic Church has never taken an official stance on the Shroud's authenticity, calling the Shroud an official icon and not a holy relic, tens of thousands still flock to Turin, Italy every year to get a glimpse of or to be near the Shroud, believing that it wrapped the bruised and bleeding body of Jesus Christ after his crucifixion. The Shroud of Turin has gone through the most intense scrutiny of any archaeological or art object in history. And here, in my research, which has included videos, articles from both sides, copies of old documents, searches through books, and reviews of recent news articles on the subject, I am siding with the believers on this one, and not looking back. Thanks for joining us with the Shroud of Turin. We do hope you encourage a friend to subscribe to this show and subscribe yourself if you haven't yet done so. There are many great stories to come. And here are a few recent reviews. The first one, five stars. Surprised and thrilled. Love this show. Very accurate and great voice for storytelling. Sounds like listening to an old friend. That one from Chris Goodson, Charlotte, North Carolina. Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, great subject matter and wonderful, sincere narration, five stars. These true tales and the exploits of the heroes featured are a delight and an inspiration. Mr. H's narrative style is engaging and sincere. I can't recommend this podcast enough. It's theater for the mind. That one from Fox Greenwood, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars. Thank you for not sugarcoating the horrible atrocities the Japanese did to our servicemen and women POWs. My grandmother hated the Japanese government and emperor all her life because her best friend and cousin's sons were murdered on the Bataan Death March. They, of course, did not find this out until the war was over when it happened to them. I always remember her refusal to ride in my father's new Japanese car in the 70s. A diehard Yankee Republican, she always said... General MacArthur and Truman should have hanged the Emperor. I, on the other hand, loved the Japanese people and the time I spent there as a young Marine. That one from Wolfie Wolf, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you very much for taking the time to leave these reviews. They're greatly appreciated. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with a brand new episode. See you then.